0: And it also does feel a little bit magic. And one of the things, particularly for me, and I hear this a lot, one of the things that attracted me to Go was that it didn't have much magic in it. It was a very clear and simple language. So I now might even be too far the other way of allergic to magic, despite having the appearance, some have told me, of a magician.
1: Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA, and 24/7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co/slash/changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co/slash/changelog.
2: do it it's go time
1: welcome to go time your source for diverse discussions from around the go community next week on go time find out what happens when a new hire an intern and a high school programmer walk into a podcast right now it's a listener requested episode on reflection and metaprogramming here we go
0: Hello and welcome to Go Time. Today we're talking about reflection and what that means in Go. We'll talk about the reflect package, what you can do with it, and some really interesting use cases for it, some examples around the standard library, even. And then we'll get opinionated about it, no doubt. So joining me today is Jana Bidogan. Hello, Jana. Hello. Welcome back. How are you doing?
2: good how are you
0: yeah not bad thanks and we're also joined by because you Jana, if you don't mind me saying you don't sound that happy <laughs> to be here uh so but don't worry this will cheer you up john calhoun's also here hello john hey matt
3: now, she How's looks like she's deep in thought about nobody else can see the video that we can but she looks like she's deep in thought about something
0: yes well it's probably she's she's reflecting she's reflecting, she's reflecting.
2: I'll reveal what I'm doing exactly.
0: Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe we should just start at the beginning at high level for anybody not familiar. What is reflection and uh, what does the reflect package give us?
3: At a high level, I it's kind of just a way of almost metaprogramming or like interacting with mm. code at runtime is a way I'd view it. I don't know what the like official definition is, but everything I've ever seen that's using it is while your code is running you want to examine other pieces of code or look at other things and see you know find some information about them or maybe try to modify different aspects of them um, so it's these things where rather than doing it as a developer at you know coding time you're doing it you know later when the program is running
0: yeah so dynamic languages do that all the time don't they like um, ruby and i think even javascript because in javascript you can like you can take a string and add methods to it at runtime, and you can kind of do anything you want. It's a really flexible language. And one of the things about Go is it is a strongly typed language, and so sort of deliberately doesn't do that. But of course, the reflect package is is an exception to that rule.
3: I'd say that like in a, in like you said, the dynamic languages, it's almost like it's not even thought of as something separate like it's just part of the language it's just something people naturally do and if you've ever coded in like ruby or one of those languages it seems so natural because you see everybody doing it it's not you know it's not something that would stick out in any code base but when you get into go it's not only is it specific like you have to import this reflect package but it's also very very limited in what it can do and i think that's intentional and it doesn't sort of go with the story of what go is trying to achieve
2: Coming from a strongly typed uh, background, I was about to say that like reflection is everything that your type system cannot provide as a first class, you know, capability. But then I was looking at the Wikipedia page and that's why I was so confused about the definition. And like, I was like, you know, in the thoughts and Matt was thinking that I was being sad. It says reflection is the ability of a process to examine introspect and modify its own structure and behavior. So it just like basically is everything. Um, and then, you know, that kind of actually makes sense if you think about the meaning of what reflection means in, you know, daily language. Um, yeah. So I think it's yeah. not even bounded to, to that, like, little. I mean, I, I try to, I think, overspecify in my mental model. It's just more of like everything, everything about introspecting and modifying the structure and behavior.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you do type assertions in Go, in a way, that's a kind of version of this, isn't it? You're saying at runtime, you're saying, here's a type and we don't know what this is, but I'm going to assert it to a particular type. And if that's successful, I can then kind of branch off and do something. Uh, so in a way, that's kind of reflecting, isn't it? A little bit. But that's that's still happening at compile time, isn't it?
3: Yeah, you can definitely put more checks there from compile time. Um, but like the yeah. actual checking I'd assume some of that has to happen at runtime because you yeah, don't you're right. actually yeah. know.
2: No, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the check-in is, assertion is happening in the runtime, so you can yeah. say that, like, I mean, it's an introspection piece and it's actual reflection, but the type system is providing a very nice, like, feature for us to do it in a nice way rather than, like, depending on a reflection package or something. So you can say that, like, yeah, that's the reflection behavior, uh, that's a reflection feature, but, you know, represented in the language with more synthetic sugar.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it does, it does help as well. It does some checks. You can't do invalid kind of type assertions and things. The compiler will help you at some point, but you're right. Of course it has to be at runtime. That's kind of the point of it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely interesting in that sense. So I guess like the type assertion one is one of the ones that I think everybody's probably seen. I'd say that the second most common one people have probably seen is struck tags. And while mm-hmm. they might not be using them like directly themselves to read them, I'd say that most people who write Go have at least seen struct tags and wondered, like, what is this thing? So I, I yeah. think that might be another one to ju- jump into with Go, because that's I definitely think that's the second most popular use case.
0: Yeah, so anybody that's not familiar, uh, and you see this particularly if you're working with JSON data, you can actually put a string after a field name in a struct, and that string can be parsed at runtime, and then of course, it can take metadata out of it. And the JSON example you, allows you to specify the field name. So you can have a different field name to the one that you're using in the struct. And you can also optionally choose for it to not include that field at all. And you can also, there's like a syntax with a string and then a comma, which is it's a quite a strange part of Go, actually. It's quite unusual, isn't it? There's not much else like it. Uh, and you can also tell it to omit the field if it's empty. So if it's its default value, then it won't be included in the JSON object. And that is kind of... I remember when I first saw that, it really felt like almost a temporary thing. But it, it has proven to be very useful and pretty effective for that, in particular, that use case. But John, you you wrote something that used struct tags as well, right? That yeah. form project.
3: What, what was that? So, I've done a couple of different things. Like, historically, I've used reflection in a lot of different projects. So, I come from a Rails background, and like, Rails is essentially a large exercise in using reflection. Like, mm. that's kind of how I view that whole framework. So, it was nothing as crazy as that because in Go, I just don't think that makes as much sense. But I wanted to write some code that essentially I wanted to take a struct and I wanted to generate an HTML form out of that. And then I wanted to later be able to parse that form whenever a user submitted it and to you know basically take all the values they submitted and put it back into that struct just to make my life a little bit easier so I could reshare that across a couple different handlers and just make that sort of thing simpler. So I created this form package that used struct tags. And there's other ways to approach this, which I think we should talk about. But it was kind of me just looking at the problem and being like, is there a way to handle this? And the struct tags were used for things like if you needed to change the name, like if the name in your field had, you know, say you had a name in your, or you had a struct, and one of the fields was named email, but you wanted it to display e underscore mail in the actual form, like as the name in the HTML, you could use struct tags to kind of change things like that. And that's where I was using it. But it also was like an interesting exercise in the sense that it showed how confusing reflect can be in Go to write, like to to use. So I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with when they get there. And I don't, part of me feels like that's intentional, like something that they did not, not like they wanted it to be worse, but they didn't like want it to be so easy that people just jumped in there and used it for everything and when they shouldn't be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because there's so much benefit to the type safety. That's it makes sense, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. And I also even found like when I was doing this, I probably used struct tags more than I should have in that. Um, some examples of that were like, if you had helper text or default values or anything like that for input fields, I actually had so you could just put struct tags in there that provided those values. And as a result, it you could have a pretty crazy long struct tag that was thrown on on something. And it looked kind of wonky because you're like, you know, this isn't really code. It's like this metadata, but it's providing a lot more than what it seemed like at first glance.
2: Matt, you said something very interesting that like when you first saw it, it looked almost temporary. That was like exactly how I felt. Because you know, I have this like concerns as well. Like, hey, uh, this is sort of like you know, Go is a very strongly typed, simple language. But you know, sometimes I feel like I'm over abusing struct tags. Uh, And I was expecting something like an annotation, right? Like uh, in other languages, we have annotations, and you can have like typed annotations, and you know, annotations can handle more complex situations without sacrificing too much from the type safety. And I was expecting something like that. uh, And this was like you know, one of the earlier like a couple of a very long time ago in the early beginnings of the language but the, you know they wanted to keep everything small the language didn't really grow to have annotations and one thing that i realized that i don't see a lot of big mess when it comes to struct tags like uh, i think people you know use one struct tag at a time for very like specific things like you know json for example keys and that sort of things well, what's your opinion on you know do, do you think that like you know, it's at a level that we don't actually need anything like an annotation or do you think that like it's a missed opportunity just because, because strike tags are hard to maintain and so on, like we are not like doing a good work or like uh, we're missing some opportunity to annotate fields in a more richer way.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting one because there's definitely value in being able to add a bit of extra metadata for a particular use case to structs. The alternative has to just be you would describe the same thing just using strong types. So, John, in your case, instead of having like a an address struct with different fields and then use the uh, struct tags to add labels and placeholders and help text and things, you'd have a form type and then a field type, probably. And it's quite verbose, but it's very clear. So I guess that's the benefit. But I always was told and i'm not i don't know about this but i i was always told that it's slow that like struct tags are slow to parse and is that the case still Uh, have there has there been any work optimizing that or is it actually pretty quick
3: i don't know but i've never worked on a project where that type of speed has mattered like if i'm Mm. rendering html and sending it back to the user chances are sending that html back to the user is going to take significantly more time than whatever the reflect struct tag parsing is going to take. So it just wasn't a major concern. And I will say when you talked about the form, like having a form type, I need to get this into gist and share it with the episode. Like maybe I'll put it in the show notes, but I actually have two versions where one I actually did with a form package that takes something like that and takes a struct and just generates some HTML if you provide like an HTML template. And then the other one is more of a, like you describe a form type. I have another struct that would be like, this is my sign up form struct. But I would write a method on that that used my generic form type and basically spit out like what that should look like. And I knew how to render that in HTML with my templates. So I didn't use reflect at all in that version. And you're right, it is a lot more verbose. But I think that in some ways, it's definitely better because it's much clearer what's happening. And then in other ways, it's kind of just depends on the type of project, I think, is what it comes down to. Because for some quick project where you want to throw a form up, it's nice to have that, you know, this package just does it. Um, in other cases where you're going for like this is gonna be a you know a much large or much longer lived project, um, we might need way more customization of stuff like sometimes it makes sense to go with something a little bit easier to change and a little bit more verbose, but you know it as a result, it still um gets you the same results.
0: yeah, I know that the old data store in App engine used to use them. Usually it was around field names, but you could also specify like, that you didn't want an index to be built on a particular field that you were then going to put in the data store. So, I mean, it's extremely powerful to just be able to annotate your structs in that way. And it makes sense because you really are talking about properties of that field in a very real way. So, yeah, and, you know, typed annotations, which is, I remember that from C-sharp, I think Java has it too. And so the idea there is that you have actual types in your code and you can use those to annotate fields. And then I suppose you can check to see for the existence of those and you can probably interrogate them and um, programmatically process them. That's a kind of cool meta programming approach. And you still probably get a lot of type safety with that too.
2: Yeah, also maintainability is higher. Um, you can also easily run queries like I mean you can ask your editor to like, hey, show me all the uses of this annotation. Or you wanna, you know, let's assume that um you wanna modify a value in an annotation, you can easily, you know, like search for that and like just kind of like go and like refactor everything all around. So um having some type safety is kind of like allows you to do that. But a- again, as I said, like I, I don't think that like we're over abusing struct tags in Go. Maybe it's because like they're not like typed or whatever. So everybody's kind of like cautious about not over you know using them. So I think we we still kind of like have a nice balance. Like they're very small. But yeah, uh, you know, I think the, the the biggest problem is uh people are afraid of since they're they unstructured and you need to parse them, people are thinking like kind of like scared of like the maintainability as well as like some of the performance implications if I if there's any
3: Like, I agree entirely with what Yana said with the sense that it might be because that they're a little bit harder to maintain that people don't use them as much. Whereas if you put those annotated tags in there, I almost wonder if people would use them more than they do now and use them in cases where they don't make a lot of sense. Because I've even seen that with struct tags where, like, I think there's a class of problems that make sense for struct tags. Like encoding with JSON or really encoding with almost anything that's similar to that. Encoding is a great example where your struct might not match exactly how it needs to encode. So you need to like have some way of defining how it should encode and decode. And ORMs are kind of the same. They kind of fall into that same class where if you're building an ORM where you just want to quickly say, put this into the SQL database and you know here's what the names of the fields are in the SQL database, like that makes sense. But then there's other libraries out there like validation libraries where you throw things like this field is required. And I'm not trying to say people should never use those, but I do see those as, potentially being problematic long term. You know, they could lead to code that has a bunch of different struct tags all littered in this, you know, type and it's really hard to understand what each struct tag is actually doing, um how they all interact together and there's no compiler safety and if we put annotated tags in there, I wonder if people would just be more willing to do that rather than look at other approaches.
0: Mm. Yeah, I've seen linters that check the JSON tags. So if you miss a quote or if it's malformed in some way, um, then some I had it once, uh, uh, some linter will say, oh, this this is malformed. It's not done by the compiler, so it's not quite the same safety.
1: But I wonder if there is a
0: sort of benefit of it not being a very attractive API that people tend to avoid it for that reason. And it also does feel a little bit magic. And one of the things... Particularly for me, and I hear this a lot, one of the things that attracted me to Go was that it didn't have much magic in it. It was a very kind of clear and simple language. So I now am, might even be too far the other way of kind of allergic to magic, despite having the appearance, some have told me, of a magician.
3: Yeah, the magic part is, <laughs> it's it's hard because I remember the first time I used Struck Tags when I was first learning Go, I think I was doing something with MongoDB. Mm. And you use, I think it's BSON to to define sort of the the struct tags. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was doing that, I'm setting up these struct tags. And in my head, I'm sitting there thinking, do I need to import something for this to work? Like, why is my Mm -hmm. code okay with this being here without me importing that? Mm -hmm. And it really confused me for a while because I'm just like, I don't understand how this is compiling. And it wasn't until later when I dove into stuff and sort of understood it. But at the time, it really did feel like magic. And that was slightly frustrating when I was first, you know, learning about it, because I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Mm.
0: I mean, it's literally a string, isn't it?
3: Yeah, but you still like, you're like, surely the compiler is doing something with this, like it leads to things being written somewhere. So you're like, how does that work?
1: Mm. And
3: it was just confusing for a while. And then later when you realize, oh, they're just parsing this string, and you know, the, the BSON package later when it's being used is doing it, then yeah, that makes more sense. But at the time, I was just very confused as to what was going on.
0: Yeah, the reflect API to interrogate those struct tags actually is quite good. It's quite a simple API because some of the reflect package is, it's so meta, isn't it? And some of it makes sense. Like you get the—you can get the value of something and the value is a struct, it's a strong type in the reflect package. And that describes the value. And then but values of course, because they can be lots of different types of things, you end up with loads of methods that most of the time are illegal to call. Like if you try and get the length of an integer, you know, of course the methods are there in the reflect package to do that. So at compile time, you could do it. And it's only then at runtime, you're going to find out you can't get the length of an integer. There's lots of examples of that. So you do end up checking everything. You'd be very verbose when it comes to kind of writing defensive code to make sure that you're not going to have any of these runtime weird things and obviously testing and things helps but
2: yeah you mentioned testing but it's hard to test as well there's no like you know a canonical set of tests that you want to run i worked on um some of the like you know database packages and there was all this like since go doesn't have generics which is something that maybe we can discuss in the context of this talk we rely a lot of on like interfaces and like type inversion. And, you know, if you have like a slice of interfaces, you know, it could be either a value or a pointer or a pointer of pointer, then you have to like do all that like magic by using the reflect package. And reflect package is already a very verbose thing. So wrapping and unwrapping like all of those types is very hard. And I, I couldn't figure out an easy way to test because there was like no set of like canonical things like, hey, uh, if the standard library was provided maybe some sort of like, hey, please consider testing these or like providing a list of things to, to test, that would be so much easier.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you have to probably test for all the different possible types and things like that. And it, and then, of course, arrays and slices. Exactly. Yeah.
3: So it's interesting that, Matt, your example of one of the easier use cases was the value of, like getting the value of something. And the funny part was that was one of the first ones I had issues with when I first used the Reflect library. Because when somebody passes something in, you like they pass in a string, you're like, okay, I'm going to get the value of this. And that makes sense. Your code works and everything seems great. And like, yeah, there are things like length and stuff like that that might not work, but you know, that that isn't always going to work. But then somebody passes in like a nil pointer that has a type, but it's a nil pointer. And all of a sudden your code breaks and you're like, what just happened? And you end up with these weird cases where if the type, kind is a pointer and if it's nil then you need to like use reflect.new to instantiate a new element and then like if it's an interface you need to like get the underlying element type that it's pointing to because the interface doesn't really help you much like there's all these weird cases that you get to where it seems really simple like i just want the value of this but that's really not what's happening so you end up with like all of these edge cases and even once you get it working and you have some tests where like, okay, we pass in an empty pointer that has a type, we pass in an empty interface, uh, we pass in an, you know, like an actual value set to that interface, you have tests for all these. At the very end of it, you're still thinking, I don't know what edge cases I'm missing because there's gonna be one. Like there's almost no way that there's not.
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way it's it's leaking the internals of how Go actually works. You do tend to learn quite a lot about the type system if you do have to use it. But frankly, I often end up in a kind of trial and error situation, relying on a TDD process to tell me if I got it right or not. I've often written, if I've used the reflect package, I often will have code where I call the LM to get the element. And then for some reason, I'm not sure why I have to call it again. And it's like, there will be a great reason for that. But I don't know what it is. And I don't really have time. And I know that if I just call lm.lm, then I get the thing I need in this case, because the test passes. So I end up being very sort of brute force when it comes to reflection. Coding, yeah, which which doesn't feel great. you know.
3: I don't use TDD that often. But like using reflect is one of the cases where I most definitely use it because I'm like, here are all the different things I know I'm going to put into this and they all need to work. And it's just so much easier to start with that because you're just Otherwise, you're just like, yeah, this works. And then you go to run it and nothing works. And you're like, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like looking at some code that I've written with Reflect and I'm seeing like the same thing where it's like, you know, dot type dot LM. And then like once you create that Reflect dot new using that, you're like dot LM for that. And you're like, I don't, looking at this code, I'm like, I have no idea why I did these things. I just know they work, which is really (laughs) weird.
2: One thing that I realized that also, I think the current type system of Go is, like, contributing to some of these problems. Because, you know, we kind of, like, fall back to this, like, interface as an argument or, like, slice of interfaces as an argument. And then, you know, like, all that, like, type inversion, just because you can't limit what the user want to do or what the user want to pass, like, you have to handle all of those cases, you know, for your library to work. Uh, one typical example uh, from the spinner Go packages we have is it has to do type inversion from the argument that the user is passing which is like some interface and it could be anything it could be a struct, or it could be like a pointer to a struct, or an array or whatever but it has to know about the type by doing type inversion so you shouldn't be passing a regular nil and you should be passing a typed nil. So Go has all this like weird stuff as well as like doesn't have any anything like you know for generics or whatever so it like invites all this like complex stuff to be handled by the libraries by user. In the reflect package and i think it contributes to the problem and we're all experiencing by like doing all this like lm.lms and don't necessarily understand why but it's just you know where the, the entire language is somewhat uh, contributing to the problem
3: that's another good point you made is that if you're working with reflect you're almost always accepting the empty interface like that's almost always what your argument is and that's usually a bad sign for code when that's what you're accepting
0: yeah, but like you say, in some cases, it's unavoidable. Yeah. And one of the things that a lot of us use every day is the JSON marshalling and unmarshalling. And that with that thing, you pass in, a, it can pass in any type because, of course, it can unmarshall into a struct type that uh, you've written or a map, actually, a map string interface. It can do that, no problem. And it actually, the reflect package can instantiate things too, can't it? It can, if you pass in a map, it will create the map for you right? Uh, And things like that. So it does get quite strange. And I, I remember in the early days, I wanted to, I was writing a mocking thing for testify. And I really wanted at runtime to create the mocked struct from an interface or from another struct. And at the time, you couldn't do it. But since then, I've actually seen, I don't know if it's possible, but I've seen functions and methods that seem like you can actually now instantiate structs and things i'd have to check but that is quite powerful and if you feel like you know if you think about we don't have generics it is quite tempting to have a look there and see if you could do do the work the hard work and get it done and and then have this extremely intelligent dynamic kind of uh, functionality which would be very interesting um and in test code maybe. Maybe you're okay with that not be, you know, it's not going to be in a tight loop. You don't want test code to ever be slow, but it's not going to be in a low latency situation running tests all the time. Um, Of of course, we still want test code to be very fast.
3: Yeah, it's like Yana said about how the, the typing system is limited. And then you mentioned like the JSON encoding. And I'm sitting here thinking like even cases where you know you have to pass in a pointer, like... You know, if you can't just pass in the, the struct, you have to pass in a pointer to the struct to, you know, get the values back. And like even having a typing system that sort of allowed, you know, allowed you to restrict that would have helped. But because of the way things are set up, it can't do that. Instead, you have to rely on maybe an error or something. Mm. This is not meant to be like, you know, bashing go or something. It's just, it's a struggle sometimes when you see that, because it's, I'm sure, confusing for some people.
0: Yeah. Well, what, what would the JSON package, what would that look like if it didn't use Reflect? I mean, you almost certainly would have some kind of callback where you, but you'd still have interfaces because you don't know the value type.
3: Yeah, it would almost have to be something like encode this and then like, instead of saying pass an interface, it almost have to say like, it has to be a pointer or you know, it it would almost have to be something along those lines. But even then that's confusing mm -hmm. because maps don't always work that way, if I recall correctly. Like, I think you can just pass a map in there and it doesn't have to be a a pointer, but I don't remember. Does that have to be a pointer to one? It's, I haven't passed yes. map into that in so long that I, I should Why go not? check. <laughs> what have you been passing in structs. Oh yeah, I decode into structs most of the time.
0: Well, if you're writing anything where you don't know the data structure, you know some APIs do do that. I mean, yeah. it is kind of dangerous territory. But if ever you don't know the actual types, I mean, I, I wrote a little. It's not finished. It kind of works, but it's it's not by any means ready. But it's basically a fake JSON data generator. So you pass in any data. I mean, you can pass in a struct, in fact, and it will generate lots of examples of that struct and it uses JSON to do it because actually just marshalling to and from JSON, at least in the API, is, is a very easy thing to do. And so in that sort of case, yeah, you know, if, if that was an API hosted on a website, you would want people to be able to pass in any kind of JSON, including an array of objects as well as a single object. And then it could maybe then generate some test example data from that. That was the idea. And that was very meta. So those those use cases aren't as common, I suppose. But the JSON API, I think, is great for when it comes to just, you know, as a user of it yeah it would be strange you'd probably end up if, if you didn't have reflect you would end up with some function where you get given the key as a string and maybe the value as some bytes and then it's up to you based on your knowledge of your particular situation to then kind of unmarshal those bytes and so it is nice that the standard library does that for us for sure and by the way if it didn't have that I, I think that would hurt Go's reputation I can't I can't, you know, imagine the Hacker News article on this of how you have to do JSON marshalling,
3: you know.
2: Yeah. I mean, Go wouldn't be adopted this, you know, widely if that was not a
3: thing. That's right. Absolutely. Even with it as is, there's already a couple cases with JSON that are challenging. Like, uh, like you said, you have structs, but like, I think Stripe's an example of this where like payment sources can be a card or like a bank account. So like you have this array of things that can be different and you kind of need to like write your own type to you know unmarshal it correctly. So you end up having to write some custom stuff for that. And I imagine if you just didn't have the JSON package at all, that it would just be a nightmare of people complaining and saying this is awful. Because I even in cases like that where you have to write custom, I still leverage as much of the JSON package as possible. Like make a struct with just that one field I want, you know, unmarshal it, figure out what it is, and then pass in the struct for whichever type I care about. And that just saves me the work of doing any of the actual overhead of how do I unmarshal this. Hi, everyone. Panelist John Calhoun here. As many of you know, when I'm not recording GoTime episodes, I create programming courses. Some of these are paid and that keeps the lights on at my house. So thank you to anyone who has purchased one of those. But I also offer free courses. One of those free courses is Gopher Sizes. It's a series of 20 Go programming exercises, and in each exercise we build something new or improve upon something we built in a previous exercise. Each exercise is designed to teach you something unique about Go, and they're also a lot of fun. So if you want to check it out, you can do that at gophersizes.com slash go time. That's G-O-P-H-E-R-C-I-S-E-S dot com slash go time. Or you can think of it as gopher plus exercises mashed together into one word because that's where it came from. So earlier, Matt, you were talking about struct tags. And one of the things Yana and I had uh, sort of talked about a little bit before the show started was, in some ways, I kind of feel like struct tags would benefit being its own separate library, like would benefit from that. Because then you can kind of separate this. I feel like struct tags are the safest version of reflection out there, or, you know, like where you import the reflect package. And then everything else is kind of the, maybe not worse, but it's definitely a little bit scarier. Mm. So, like having that, you know, edge case where you could just pull out struct tags might be useful to actually have as a separate, like, okay, I'm just looking at struct tags here.
0: Yeah, I see what you mean. So that you don't have to have all the, all the, the the entire reflect package imported into your code and i think the reflect package also has unsafe in there although i think there's a lot of very normal packages also do have unsafe um but but yeah i see what you mean so that you would you would in order to parse the struct tags you would have, import a different like a reflect slash struct tags package or something Hmm, quite like that mate it should um you should tell someone about that
2: I I remember in the earlier days of Go, like they were saying like, hey, if you're importing the reflect package, that's like a no-no. Like it was almost like considered as an unsafe because, you know, you also are depending on unsafe for a lot of the reasons and so on. But, you know, it was one of those like import lines that you should never see or you should be very careful if you have ever seen it. And you should be very controlled about your usage and so on. But, you know, all of a sudden, everybody starts to, you know, import, reflect, because, you know, it does a lot of, like, fundamental things, like the struct tags. So I think it just kind of also gives a lot of, like, mental separation to the user if it was a separate package. So you can write linter tools in whatever to catch for import reflect, but, you know, like at least like some of the basics or some of the like more easier concerns can be living in different packages. And uh, one of the things that I've seen related to this was people, if they want to rely on the reflect package, they don't necessarily import it all around. They just kind of like go and like encapsulate like all the reflect usage in a different package and then they Mm -hmm. provide some utilities from that package. Uh, Have you seen anything like this or have you done anything like that?
0: No, but that makes sense to me. At least then you've got all of that weirdness in one place. Um, but I don't know that if that's a healthy approach, you know, because that's just, you know, that's kind of like kitchen sink or utils sort of.
3: I've definitely done the yes, have sort of. one file, like source file, where like this is where all my reflect stuff got put. Mm. And But like I've never done anything big enough with Go's reflection that I've had to go that far. Mm. Um now, I, I can say that I'm definitely guilty of, and like Ruby going crazy with some of the metaprogramming stuff, but I kind of feel like when I went to Go, it just didn't feel like writing Go code. It didn't seem like the right approach. So I, I, I kind of veered away from it where I could.
0: Yeah. I saw an example where somebody wanted to be a very good citizen and they were going to put some data in a map. And if the map was nil, it was panicking, of course. So they were actually using, I think, the JSON unmarshaller. If in the case that the map was nil, it would just marshal it, and they put the string in line, like the little two little curly braces, to you know, to denote an empty object. And they would actually create a map using that technique, <laughs> you know, which <laughs> means as a programmer, you then could pass in an, uh, a nil map, and it would still work. But again, it's, it's a bit too magic, and also just kind of letting it panic or since it was a library, even sometimes I don't mind catching situations that would panic and then panicking with a better error message. Like you have to pass, you know, you have to create the map before you pass it in or something like that. But yeah, I've seen a few cases where it's been used, where you don't really need it, but people have tried to kind of go the extra mile for their users. So yeah, those kinds of things are quite interesting. Another form of reflection is... With the AST package in Go and, and some of the um, actual kind of code reflection, code analysis packages, and they they kept getting better as well. They started; they were very difficult to use, and there are a few higher level packages now that makes it a lot easier. Uh, we have a project where we actually describe our API in Go interfaces, and we use that sort of uh, ast there's a packages package which lets you actually open a package and then you can walk through interfaces and things like this and then inspect the fields inside the interface and things so it does that kind of reflection to then it represents that data in its own structure and then uses that to generate code from a template so it's nice because we have All of our APIs are are described as Go interfaces, which, as since we're Go developers, that's very easy for us to understand and reason about. And also, it's a real Go package, so it's type-safe too. You can't use invalid types, you know. So it's a great way to describe an API. You know it's going to work. And then we can generate the client from that. We generate the server code, you know, the HTTP stuff, the stubs, all that stuff. Anything boilerplate can get generated. And we even generate another interface which is actually slightly different from the original one, because it takes a context and returns an error. Um, and we omitted that from the definitions. And so we then have to we can write our definition interface, we run the code gen, and then we implement the interface, and that's it. We've then got a new service that's then exposed in our project.
2: When are you open source on this?
3: I think you already did.
0: It's open source, yeah. It's called Really? O- it's called Oto, yes it's good for J- like it's basically json it's a json api at the moment but actually since it's just code gen and they're just templates you could easily write a a binary um protocol for it or any other type actually yeah so it's nice somebody's written a rust a server rust template for it too uh, so that's quite weird but kind of awesome also it, we'll put it in the show notes it's pace it's GitHub.com/pace.dev/otto. But I'll put it in the show notes for anyone that's interested. And we're using it in production and it it's just it just works great. I mean our use case is is somewhat simple, but it's it's a really nice kind of and it is it's reflection really because we have to programmatically inspect those interfaces and then do some work with them, you know.
3: So Matt, I'm assuming that you're generating code with auto.
0: Yes, it does that's basically what it is. It okay. takes Go interfaces, mixes them with an interfa- with the template. And generates new code.
3: I was going to say, I do think we talk about how reflection is bad, or you know, you should try to avoid it because it's confusing, it's hard to, to reason about, and it's just hard to maintain. But I think sometimes that's hard because we don't tell people alternative approaches. And I, right. I do think code generation is one of the big ones out there that can be very useful. Like you said, you're kind of doing that like reflection thing where you're, you're actually analyzing the code, and then you generate code from it. And you end up with something that's much, much easier to manage about. And I've even seen some ORMs that go with that approach, where I think SQL Boiler was one of them, mm. uh, where basically they would they would scan your database, your, your SQL database, and then they would generate Go structs from that. Right. So like rather than using Reflection, they're like, okay, we're just going to spit out things that match your database perfectly, and you can just use these. And it, it's a very different approach, but I think it having reflection being kind of limited forces people to look at these other approaches and and decide, is this better? Is this easier to maintain?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's also the go generate feature, the, the command and the, you can put a comment in special comment, which again is a little bit magic, but it's like two slashes, go colon generate, and then a command. And then if you type go generate in your project, it will run those commands and they they they're useful for exactly that kind of thing where you're then going to you're going to do a sort of pre-build step where you generate the code and that is a nice approach because you get the type safety you get the compiler helping you not not maybe initially but once it's generated that code then uh, is part of your project usually and it's going to be built and if it's yeah. wrong you'll you'll find out soon enough
2: That's exactly what I was about to tell um I think the difference between you know the AST package or and the, the, the reflect package is like the AST package is a static thing, Like right? Like it's not doing things in the runtime. So you generate, you still like have the, like the similar level of like uh, maintainability as well as like si- type safety. You just generate some stuff for the compiler. So if you can hand off some of the problems to code generations, that's definitely something to do.
3: Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. We talked about generics earlier, and I've—I would actually love to see an implementation of generics that essentially just runs a Go generate at the start. Like you write your code as if generics are there, like using a proposal, and then it essentially just compiles it using you know some step beforehand into Go code and generates whatever it needs to generate, and then goes from there. Because I think it would be possible; it would just take some tricky work.
0: I wrote exactly that project with a friend of mine, um, and it's called Jenny. And it's used. People use it. It uses a special type, which is just an interface type in a different package. And then it I think it's the AST stuff again. It goes and finds those instances and looks for where you've... Actually, you list it in the command. You run a command and you list the types you want to support. And then it is just a kind of copy and paste. And yeah. it replaces that type wherever it's mentioned. It's not perfect because like, you can't do type assertions on it it stops making sense because well it just gets quite weird but for simple cases it works. i think that's what you're talking about
3: i've used something like that i guess what i'm thinking is it would almost be nice to take that idea and expand it further to be like like the current generics proposal to make it so you can write code exactly like that and Mm. as far because like one of the issues with generics is the fact that it ends up making some of the different steps with co- compilation and everything else more complicated. So rather than baking that into the compiler, if you could just have a pre-compile step where, mm. you know, like it seems kind of like it's already built into the language, but it really isn't. It's like translating it at that point. Right um, Now, I, it might end up being so annoying to do that that it doesn't make sense. To
2: me, you know, generics has always been like, hey, there is this... Template and you generate things, and the compiler is handling all of that stuff because you know the generated code is too complicated to take a look, and you know that's why the language needs to provide some synthetic sugar to be able to you know like engage with those types and so on. So I, I wonder like I think if it expose what is generated that would be super scary to the user. Uh, you will have all this like you know dash dash types and like all this like you know different cases and whatever. So I think that like it's not going to look really good for a large number of cases and that might kind of like discourage people to take a look at generics to begin with. That's why I'm like waiting for the you know the actual generics proposal and implementation because you know I want to see that synthetic sugar how it's going to look even though the hard work is not visible to me at least like you know I just actually I'm not really interested in the you know what is generated under hood because I know that it's going to be complicated for a lot of times and I think one of the reasons that like uh, generated these generators or um, stuff uh, the generic you know the the temporary generic proposals didn't really catch up. It's because, um, you know, you need to have like some sort of like an officially blessed generics solution, right? Like as a library, I can't really like randomly pick one tool versus the other. Hmm. There's not a lot of like ex- experimentation actually. Like you can't really expose what's underneath. I just want something that works for everyone um, so we can agree on it. All the library systems space kind of like switched to it. I don't really care what's like, you know, generated under hood and they can always optimize it, whatever. Like there's like so much like work have been done in, in this field. So we're not like trying to do this for the first time. So I, I, I assume that like we should find a solution to generics. It should be in the, you know, the official language. And I don't think that like, we need that much of experimentation, but it will be hard for people because, you know, it's going to definitely complicate the language.
1: Yeah, but you know,
0: a lot of JavaScript libraries do they have like this approach where they have a shim essentially or they do like I think the TypeScript originally was or Dart, actually. Google's Dart was originally just transpiling to JavaScript and it did look ugly. But Yana, you just have to not look at it, mate. Just call the file don't look at this dot go. Something I
3: think you just have to train people that like it's almost like you build a compiler on top of a compiler, and like that's the one that gives you errors, and you you interact with, and then like the compiled, you know, whatever it compiles into, then eventually compiles into. You kind of have to hide that away somewhere in like a a bundle folder or something.
0: Yeah, but you you know, all think about the IDEs and everything, everything breaks when suddenly you've got syntax that's not valid. None of the tools would work.
3: It'd be much harder now, but with the changes they're doing to um, how the different IDEs use the language server hopefully that sort of experimentation yeah so like basically the fact that they're all using kind of like a common what i forget what it's called but basically like the language server like there's a common spec for all the different languages to implement so hopefully Mm -hmm. that type of work will lead to more potential experimentation on top of existing languages so that could be interesting to see
0: do you want to just give a quick overview for anyone that doesn't know what is the langu- What is a language server? I think it's LSP, isn't it? Language server protocol. That sounds right.
3: So the general idea is that rather than every IDE or editor out there implementing their own, like uh, you know, implementation of how Go's autocomplete should work and how JavaScript's autocomplete should work, I think VS Code was the first one to standardize it. But I'm not. I think others yeah. are using it now.
2: Yeah, I think it came from Microsoft. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, yes. it did. It came from Microsoft's Visual Studio Code.
3: So the idea is that they come up with sort of like, in Go terms, an interface or like a, you know, this is what a, an LSP should spit out for a language. Like if you're typing, you know, whatever, and it, like basically it, it should have some methods there that you implement and it can give autocomplete suggestions depending on where the user is. And the idea was that you could then implement that for any language. And then any IDE or editor could use it to implement autocomplete inside of the editor.
0: Yeah, which is amazing. And honestly, I can't actually believe that works because of how different all the languages are. How on earth have we found a protocol where you can just describe any of it? I find that to be quite amazing, actually. And no doubt it's, it's non-trivial as a protocol.
3: It's probably one of those, there's, there's probably like 1% of edge cases where it's not that great with. But for yeah. most developers, that just doesn't matter enough to outweigh the benefits of having the LSP. Yeah. But then there's still the, the problem, not problem necessarily, but different editors use their own approach to this. Like I think Goland is one of the ones that doesn't use language servers, they use something completely in house. And in some ways, that's beneficial because when GoPlease first came out, it was pretty brittle. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and theirs, I think, was better at the time with Go modules. But, but now I don't know if that's necessarily true.
0: I've heard very good things.
2: That's that's usually what JetBrains do, right? Uh, they build everything in house. Yeah. Um that's their like niche. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My only thing is, a few times that I've had to touch Java, I've had that kind of Eclipse IDE, and it really, it's an aesthetic thing. Actually, you know, I use Visual Studio Code because it's it kind of looks so much nicer, and it's you spend so much time in there. I feel like it does matter. I feel like it. You want it to be a beautiful experience. But I've heard some amazing things about how that Goland editor, the, the features it has, the things it can do. I haven't yet played with it, but um, yeah, I, I would be interested if anyone would like to tweet at me and tell me about their experience. I'll probably read it.
3: Probably.
1: The changelog is deep discussions in and around the world of software, and it's been going for over a decade. We interview hackers like Chris Anderson from 3D Robotics. At the time, drones were like predators and global hawks and military industrial and they were classified and super, you know, $10 billion things. And we had just built a drone with Lego pieces around the dining room table programmed by a nine-year-old. And it's like, okay, that should not be possible. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not, it, when when a nine-year-old can do something that is classified, that literally export control as munition with Lego with toy pieces, it was something important in this world has changed. Leaders like Devin Zugel from GitHub. In the like 10 to 15 year range or 20 year range, what I would really like is for, if you have like three 12 year olds hanging out and one of them's like, I wanna be a firefighter. Another one's like, I wanna be a lawyer. I want one of them to say that I wanna be an open source developer. And innovators like Amal Hussein.
3: I've
0: yet to kind of see applications at scale that don't use multiple languages, that don't have just arcane stories behind why this weirdo thing exists, you know? Like, all right, when you open this file, you're gonna have to turn around
1: three times
0: and tap your nose (laughs) once. like it's just just the most hilarious stories you know but applications are living breathing they have craft that's
2: normal so i want to normalize weirdness because that's just how applications evolve over time
1: welcome to the changelog please listen to an episode from our catalog that interests you and subscribe today we'd love to have you with us
0: Guess what time it is?
3: Guess. I think we know it's probably unpopular opinion time.
0: It's unpopular opinion time. So does anyone have an unpopular opinion then? I mean, some of these things we've already said probably are a little bit unpopular, but have you got any, anything in particular?
3: I have one. Oh, go ahead, Yana. I'm going to let her take the stage.
2: We need generics. I think this is not a very unpopular
0: opinion. But
2: <laughs> I've been saying this since the beginning of the language and everybody has been hating me. But I think we <laughs> need
3: generics. See, I agree entirely, <laughs> but that's because I've done enough... Like, I, I think one example is for Go to do well in an educational space, like for people to pick it up in college, they're going to be dealing with data structures. And it's really hard to do data structures without generics. And I just, I think that's one of the reasons why Java is like taught so much in schools is because it does well with that.
0: Yeah. What do you think about the recent generics proposals?
3: The ones I've seen, or the most recent one I've seen I liked, I haven't yeah, you know, gone too deep into it, but it seems fine to me. I'm not too particular. My needs are I, fairly limited.
0: I think they're making great progress on the the design of it. And of course, you, you hear a lot that the, the real concern is implementing it, what that does to the type system in Go, and how easy that's then going to be to maintain and things like this, which is great to hear that there are people on the Go team and, and other contributors that that really prioritize that because it is kind of vital, really. I mean, it would, hate, it would hate to get to the point where we can't add any more features to go because it's just too complicated now. So I'm with you on that one, Jana, actually.
2: Actually, I'm super burned out from this topic that I stopped following the the proposals like hmm. a year ago.
0: Why were you just getting really emotional about it?
2: It's, it's not being emotional, but, you know, there are like... At least you know fifty concerns I had about every proposal. Oh, only fifty! And there are no easy answers. Yeah, I mean, was like <laughs> high level ones. You're making other people it's, emotional. It's, it's like, exactly, <laughs> and um, I think I'm not. I was not like, really contributing to the discussion. And uh, lots of like the points that you know that was in my mind, and I was like feeling anxious about. Is like you can't truly anticipate what the reality will be like because it really depends on the people we're going to take the generics and like use it and you know we'll see it over time like how it's actually going to impact the entire library space so I was like feeling like hey I'm not really you know contributing to this discussion and um, I'm excited that it's happening and I you know the people I am almost certain that they care a lot Mm. like they care more than me so you know what's the point of trying to contribute to that. (laughs)
3: Like one of the things this reminds me of is the type alias and how much pushback that got and like how it was going to ruin the language. And ever since it's come out, I don't feel like I've seen it any, like occasionally you'll see it. And I've done some weird things with it, just kind of messing around to see what was possible.
1: But I don't feel like
3: I've run into libraries that have abused it or anything, which is kind of, it's funny because you just saw all that pushback and then I get their concerns. I'm not trying to say people shouldn't express their concerns. I'm But it's just funny how like that didn't actually come to fruition at all.
0: Yeah, but it is in there.
2: I was just about to give that as as an example because like that was like the moment that I actually started to burn out, like started to feel burnout uh, from Mm. the project and I wanted to go and like do something else. And everything like kind of was becoming this like infinite loop of discussions about what, what the possibilities and so on. So with generics, I didn't want to you know contribute to that uh, because there's already too many voices and like you know there's it, it's it's hard it's hard job to figure out because you know you can't predict the future. Also, mm. I also trust Go developers because uh, a lot of people care a lot of, about like simplicity, so they never take a feature and abuse it. Like I think Go users are pretty informed about the core subset of the language they want to use. And the language is not huge, but I also trust the larger ecosystem. So I'm not that concerned anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can always not use it. And to be honest, I didn't quite realize, I realized very late that type aliases got into the language. I remember the proposal and (laughs) the big debate, but uh, another one was the try proposal, that one with the errors... Kind of, for me, I was allergic to that because, you know, it felt too magic. And yeah, I feel like uh, that didn't fit in with kind of the philosophy of Go. We have to watch out, I think, that we aren't just, we don't just like the Go as it is, and we're not, and we're too rigid not to allow any uh, evolution. But I do think you're right, Jana, we kind of are aware, aren't we, of, simplicity and and things not being too magic and things that we are as a community quite aware of that and yeah i suppose you can always just not use it if you don't if you don't like it
3: i think this is probably why reflect is such a weird topic because people come from other languages where it's completely normal to use it like I, Mm. i think i said it before we started recording but i don't think ruby would be popular if reflect wasn't such a and metaprogramming wasn't such a big thing in that language like rails and all the crazy things you can do with it are all a byproduct of being able to do metaprogramming. And in many ways, it makes that language more productive. But none of that would make any sense in Go whatsoever. So like when people come from a language like that to Go and they're like, well, why does this Reflect Library so hard to use? And why does everybody tell me not to use it? It's a hard mental shift. And I think it's because, you know, it's a different sort of approach to solving problems and a different set of priorities.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I've sometimes just, instead of maintaining some, uh, like there's a bit of code that's got reflection in it, instead of maintaining it, I'll rewrite it. Because in a way that, you know, that process of doing it is how I figure out what's going on. It, that's the thing. For for me, it is actually hard to maintain, where I sort of give up and instead will just prefer to rewrite it, which I, I tend to do that if I can anyway, frankly, because I always find rewriting is is a way to get a better version of what you have. You know, you learn so much doing it that the second time you write it, it is always a lot better. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting, it is an interesting one. Well, I I think that's all the time we have today. Uh, Next week, we've got a very interesting show. We're going to invite on somebody who just got their first job doing Go. And we're also going to invite on somebody who's learning Go and programming in Go, who's still at high school. So looking at the very beginnings of uh, people getting into this crazy world that we call just programming and that. So, John, thank you very much. Yana, always a pleasure. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks to listener Rod for requesting this episode. Did you know we take requests? Head to changelod.com slash request pick go time in the drop down and let us know what you would like to hear about on the podcast we also have a master feed it's everything we produce in one easy feed plus some exclusive backstage content that only hits the master feed subscribe at changelog.com slash master or search for changelog master feed in your favorite podcast app you'll find us thanks to matt ryer john calhoun and yana dogan for an awesome conversation to Breakmaster cylinder for producing all of our music to our sponsors for supporting our work Vasily, Linode, and Rollbar are longtime partners at GoTime. And thanks to you for listening and sharing GoTime with other curious devs like yourself. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next week.
0: I always
3: got to play guitar.
0: I got to do air guitar, yeah. <laughs> you got like no guitars in
3: the background, but you're like, nope.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm not gonna play. I'm not gonna play them though on my own thing. Do you know what I mean? Yana, you agreed once that that I do look like a magician. Do you remember?
2: Yeah, you look like a magician.
0: Yeah. You know how hard it is. <laughs> you take it for granted, but I had to like come out to my parents. I'm like, mom, Wait. dad, sit down, <laughs> pick a card. <laughs>
2: But you know, it's like it's it's like this like facial hair, like yeah. this style. It's very I, magician. It does
0: look like a magician. It's ridiculous. I should t-
2: yeah.
3: t- change it, but
0: oh. I can just imagine yeah. it.
3: You come out to your parents as a magician. They're like, we got to get him a computer or something. Get him into programming.
0: <laughs> yeah, get him a, get him to be a Go programmer because the, there's no magic there.
3: I don't know why your family would be against
0: magic, <laughs> but maybe there's some backstory.
3: <laughs> maybe your parents are like, he's got to move out. That doesn't pay very well. <laughs> i actually have no idea how much magic pays but i assume it'd be hard to get into
0: yeah yeah i think it's difficult uh yeah i can't think of a joke Ah, it's a shame because there must be loads of jokes just waiting there to be plucked out of thin air that'll do that's close Uh, enough i like the awkward silence after a joke that's my favorite bit